Welcome to this special broadcast of Mostly Folk. Uh, I had the occasion to interview Liz Thompson, who just wrote a book about Joan Baez, a biography. And as we, I learned during the interview, it's the first biography of Joan Baez. And that in itself is fairly remarkable. So it's a great interview. Uh, Liz has lots to say about Joan Baez. We'll be playing some music. This is an interview that I did at WIOX Radio on my program, The Catskills Cafe. And I hope you enjoy it. I'm Marty Martello, and welcome to Mostly Folk. I was born in East Virginia, North Carolina. I did a Thank you. 
lifted your soul down to the place where it longs to be. John Baez with a love song to a stranger from the complete A&M recordings and from Joan's very first album, East Virginia. So let's jump right into the interview that was conducted with Liz Thompson on WIOX Community Radio. And uh, you are fortunate to listen to Liz all the way from Great Britain. As promised, I have Liz Thompson on the phone, and Liz has just written a biography of Joan Baez called The Last Leaf. Hi, Liz. Hello, yeah. Ah, there you go. Okay. How are you doing? Uh, I'm as well as as any of us can be in these crazy countries that we both live in. Goodness. Are you guys also uh, under the strain that the United States is going under right now? I I know it's been this COVID thing has been back and forth uh, from country to country and shutdowns and reopenings. What stage are you at right now? Well, where England is in lockdown, Wales has just come out of lockdown. Scotland, I think, is in lockdown. Um, so it's not not too much fun here. Plus, mm. of course, we we're having some local government difficulties of our own, and we're you know we're about to supposedly finalise Brexit, our break from the European Union. So nothing is much fun, and I know it's not for you. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, well, you know, I mean, you've got you know hopefully you've got a, you've got a uh, inaugural on January the twentieth, but it's looking mm-hmm. a bit dri- tricky in the meantime. We can only pray that we have. Yes. Uh, well, you know, it's still such a crazy situation that nobody really knows what's happening. Uh, it's something we've never experienced before in this country. So uh, let's just uh, see what develops. Democracy hopefully will reign supreme. Uh, but One hopes. Uh, but it's happened here before, you know, there's been uh, civil wars before. Yes, uh, but, yes. But, you know, the reason we're talking today is because of this new book that you have. I have to be honest, I haven't finished reading. I started reading it, and it's a fascinating a story of Joan Baez, uh, things I've never known before. So I certainly recommend it to anyone that's Thank a fan. You. And uh, but let's talk about well, f- let's talk about you first before we get into Joan. Uh, t- tell us about yourself and how you got into doing what you're doing right now. Okay, well, I'm I'm British as we established, and um, I'm 63, so that's kind of old. But it was young for Joan Baez the first time round, uh, and in fact, I got into her completely by accident. I was given my sister ten years older than I, and she gave me first of all a sort of half-size guitar, and then I got a Spanish, a full-size, genuinely Spanish guitar, which I had to learn to play. It's the summer of 1969, I was about to go to high school. And uh, I found Joan Baez Volume 2 in my sister's record collection. I mean, I have never ne- had never heard of Joan Baez, but the back of the cover showed her playing a Spanish guitar. So I thought, well, that sounds hopeful. Uh, and, of course, I put it on, and I heard songs like Barbara Allen and Banks of the Ohio and Plaisir de Moore, songs that I sort of vaguely knew in my mind's ear. So gradually, with my six chords, I began to learn to play guitar. And uh, I did learn a, a lot of her material. Uh, but I also fell in love with the voice and fairly soon with, you know, the figure her social activism. And, uh, you know, as I got a little bit older, as I got into my early teens, 13, 14, 15, in the old analog days, 
when you just followed sleeve notes and you know uh, newspapers and stuff in the you know the old fashioned library. Um, she was sort of a Venn diagram through which I explored um, not just the music of the American 60s and 70s, but actually American social political history. So I got into all the stuff about Martin Luther King, who, of course, I knew about but didn't know, hadn't heard the speech of the March on Washington uh, and you know, the civil rights movement generally in Vietnam. So um, through her music and those of her, her confrères, um, I learned a lot about American sociopolitical culture. You say something in your book that struck me because I thought the same thing. And uh, to quote, you said, you tried to imitate her phrasing, breath control, diction, and, imi yes. and imitating where you could her skilled and often innovative guitar style, which has gone mm -hmm. mostly unremarked. And I I agree 100%. Many times I, I listen to Joan Baez and I say, my gosh, she really plays a beautiful guitar. And nobody talks about that, you know? No, it's true. I mean, no one does. I mean, obviously people think of the riff on Diamonds and Rust, for example, which is sort of quite a complicated riff way up the fingerboard with the high strings. But, you know, even on those early albums where she's, you know, they're quite simple songs. But it's interesting because she'll pick out, you know, she'll pick out a bass line that will be some tonic dominant, relative minor or whatever, and quite often a counter melody um, to what she's singing. Uh, and, and sometimes she's picking a guitar part that's sort of in harmony to what she's singing. I mean, it's a very skillful um, picking, I mean, especially as compared to someone like Dylan. And then, of course, in, on songs like Babe, I'm Going to Leave You from the um, in concert volume two or one, I've forgotten which. But anyway, you know, it's a very complicated triplet figure. Um, and it's a, it's a thing that inspired Jimmy Page, uh, soon to be of Led Zeppelin. So she was a very innovative guitarist, um, so not just kind of, not just strumming. She, yeah. she really picked carefully. Rust. 
guitar. Now, let's talk about her now. When she first emerged on the scene, it was in, where was it, in Boston or, New, or, or in no, Cambridge? No, it was Cambridge, Boston. I mean, she, okay. she, she had a peripatetic childhood, learned on the ukulele, first of all, and her father, who was a, quite an eminent uh, physicist, mathematician, um, got posted to um, various uh, establishments, actually, in Cambridge. Um, so the family came cross country where Joan was supposed to be attending Boston University, instead of which she got, I mean, she did for about five minutes, but she got hooked by the Cambridge coffee house scene, where she was really introduced to, to uh, folk music. And of course, the, the club with which she is most associated is Club 47. Um, there's a blue plaque outside there now in, in, on uh, Mount Norton Street. Um, but she played at the Golden Vanity in various places in Boston and Cambridge. But Club 47 is, is the coffee house with which she is forever associated. Um, and which this time last year, in fact, I was in Boston at the Wang Theatre and um, they celebrated the 60th anniversary. It's now Club Passim, of course, and Betsy Siggins, who ran it and was very instrumental in you know, helping Joan get gigs there. Uh, they've remained friends, was given a special Lifetime Achievement Award. So it was very exciting to be there yeah. 60 years on with Joan presenting the award to Betsy, you know. And, and 
And you have interviewed her how many times? I mean, you, <laughs> uh, it's amazing. How did you get those interviews, by the way? How did that Half a dozen or so, I think, and I've sort of spent some time with her on other occasions. Um, well, I mean, for much of the time that I followed her, she was deeply unfashioned. I mean, certainly when I was growing up and listening to her, kind of my school friends were listening to David Casty and the Osmonds, and I was going home and listening to Byers and Dylan and Leonard Cohen and Janice Ian and so on. Um, and I first met her at a press conference with Robert Shelton, the Times critic who lived here for the last couple of decades of his life in 1980. Uh, and then I think I did a press call for Greenham Common where she was protesting the cruise missile placement in 1984. And then at several uh, points after that, which and it was a great privilege. And I suppose the most exciting um, occasion I spent with her, <coughs> excuse me, I got dispatched in 1995 by Mojo to um, report on the Ring Them Bells sessions at the bottom line in New York. Um, so I saw the first two of the four recording sessions that are captured on Ring Them Bells and interviewed her um, there, which was great fun, and I sat it on the rehearsal. So it was a great privilege to spend time with her. And uh, I last interviewed her when she was on her farewell tour. I saw her last year but didn't interview her but when she was in the UK in 2018. And we reflected, actually, at that point that um, I interviewed her in 1990, and she thought that her career maybe had 10 years more to run, and she wanted to bow out of, at a time of her choosing. And her, here we were almost 30 years further on. Um, so it's a pretty remarkable career, 60 years. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm a little bit older than you. And growing up, of course, Joan Baez was... Uh, one of the uh, people that we would go to see in concert. And, uh, you know, it was around the time that Peter, Paul, and Mary had just released uh, Blowing in the Wind. Yeah. And as I told you in an email, we, uh, I forget what year it was, but it had to be in the very early 60s. It was, uh, nobody knew who Bob Dylan was at that point. They really, They knew the song because of Peter, Paul, and Mary, but they didn't mm -hmm. know anything about the author and uh, so we were at a Joan Baez concert and she uh, would have Dylan come up on stage with her yeah. and we didn't know who this guy was so this scruffy little guy walks out onto the stage and uh, he uh, my, I, I'll always remember my brother-in-law was sitting next to me and he kind of nudges me and he you know Dylan started singing uh, a bullet from the back of a bush and, and my brother-in-law hits me and he goes this guy's drunk. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute. I said, you got to listen to this song, what he's saying. And uh, anyway, that, that was the story. But yeah, so Joan Baez really gave uh, Bob Dylan a tremendous boost in his career. She did. I mean, you were amazingly lucky to see them together. I mean, I've walked a thousand miles to have seen them in the kind of 70s or 80s. But she did. And I think the Dylan people, you know, the kind of real Dylan obsessive, especially the guys, they often try to deny that she was important. They say, oh, he was already, you know, she wrote, she wrote on him. But in fact, you know, she, she had albums in the charts um, and she'd had a face on the cover of Time magazine when Dylan was still scuffling for dimes around Greenwich Village. So the fact that she recorded um, his songs, as she did you know, with God on Our Side and Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, were two of the earliest songs she recorded uh, from that, those live tours of the South, which became in concert one and two. Um, you know, it was very crucial, and then she brought him on stage at concerts, mostly in the um, Northeast, 
but not exclusively. I mean, they played the Hollywood Bowl. That was a fantastic um, leg up for him, you know. And of course, he never, you know, he never returned the favour. Bye.
that Judas Iscariot had got on his There you have it live from Newport, and that was recorded in 1963. Of course, it was uh, not the greatest recording, being it was a concert recording, but um, gosh, what a, yeah, those two together, there was just something about them that uh, certainly was exceptional, and despite the, uh, the gruffiness of Dylan and the beautiful uh, angelic voice of Joan Baez they they somehow hit it off didn't they Liz yeah they did I mean I would have loved to see them together I mean that so that's Newport 63 both performances I think um, and Shel- Robert Shelton who was the guy who wrote the famous New York Times review of Dylan said that um, he'd arrived at Newport an underground conversation piece and he left the star and that was thanks to Baez um, but I, it is remarkable because when you, you, when you see footage of them singing together, you can see how closely she's looking at him and following his lips and his gestures yeah. because, of course, he's very difficult to follow. And you can hear there that's his guitar accompaniment. It's sort of slightly out of tune in places. It's very basic, very different to her kind of picking style. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his voice is still very, you know, it's, there's kind of beauty in that Woody Guthrie voice. But as you say, hers is, is just a beautiful melodic voice. And here, his is very, is very rough and very mm-hmm. harsh. So you can see why people who came to hear this beautiful young soprano in 1962, 63, 64, um, were kind of cross that you know they found this um, gruff ragamuffin uh, <laughs> taking over a lot of the program. But in actuality, I've always said that Bob Dylan uh, did have a good voice. He really did. He knew he he had incredible timing. Um, yes. You know, especially back then, and. He, uh, there was something about his voice. He could carry a tune. It kind of came out on uh, the album he did in Nashville. Uh, you know, did some country stuff. But yeah, Nashville uh, Skyline. Yeah, yeah, on Nashville Skyline. But uh, most people didn't. You know, I, I remember my father. My father was a big Bing Crosby fan, and when he heard Bob Dylan, he almost fell off the chair. But yeah. Um, but you know, Joan Baez uh, and him together just to me was there was nothing like it. And um, yeah, uh, I remember in the movie uh, "Don't Look Back," he he would say, "Oh, his his voice is better than Caruso," yeah. <laughs> you know. And he was putting right. them yeah. he was putting them on. But you know what? He, it really was not that bad of a voice. Uh, no, it was a very expressive voice, and it fitted his. 
his you know the songs he wrote incredibly well and you know i think going back to them together i mean they had great fun together i mean the the philharmonic um halloween concert of course which is now officially available um you know that must have been an amazing concert to be at because they're obviously having such fun doing things like you know when you go laddie go and all yeah. the rest of the wild mountain time um yeah the experience of seeing them together um was incredible and you know they kind of symbolized so much at that you know that time it's hard to think now um, you know, 62, 63, the early 60s was a different era, you know, um, how exciting what they were doing together was um, and how many hopes were vested in them as they stood there, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Joan's political activism and, you know, where where that all came from and how it developed uh, right up until today. I saw a... Uh, I very rarely use Facebook. I like to post my shows on Facebook. Uh, I'm not a big Facebook fan, but a couple of, uh, at, right after the election, there was a thing that popped up on my feed, and it was Joan Baez dancing around a grocery store. Uh, That's right. Right after the election, and you know, and people would would join in dancing with her uh, in celebration of Biden's win. Yeah. And so talk about talk about her how she got involved in all of this and you know Well how... I mean she she grew up you know a Quaker I mean her her father who was um was kind of encouraged to use his science for military purposes and he had a crisis of conscience and decided he didn't want to and it was Joan by a senior Joan's mum who suggested they go to Quaker meeting uh, and see how he felt about it and he made peace with his conscience at the Buffalo Society of Friends and, of course, the three girls, Joan was the middle one, they all went along, too, hating the silence and going to Quaker Sunday school, you know. Um, but to some degree or other, you know, she's kept, I don't know whether she'd call herself a Quaker now, but she certainly likes the silence, um, and she certainly meditates and so on. Um, but, I, you know, I think that that really kind of gave her something. And, of course, she went, it was at a, a youth, a Quaker youth camp that she heard Dr. Martin Luther King speak when she was 17, um, and through the Quakers also that she met a guy named Ira Sandpearl, who was a Gandhian nonviolent activist, uh, part of the, uh, of the book scene, you know, around Kepler's bookstore in Stamford, Menlo Park, um, Stamford Village as it was then, it's of course not now. And she got to know him and they would set up the Institute for the Study of Nonviolence together in 1965. So the kind of, the nonviolence, the pacifism has been a thread throughout all of her career and she's, you know, she's been to Vietnam, she was in the Deep South, obviously at the, the high watermark of, of the civil rights movement when it was grim the first time, it's grim again, I know, 62, 63, 64 and all those flashpoints and then of course she was in Latin America, sorry about that. Uh, she went to Hanoi, you know, not not to support either side, but to to to, to visit. She went with um, um, someone who'd been a Nuremberg prosecutor um, during Nixon's Christmas bombardment, um, and she went to Sarajevo during the siege. You know, the first artist to go in there, uh, supported by George Soros, who was trying to take music and and acting in to give some pleasure to the to the citizens who were without food and electricity and water and much besides. So I think the music and the social activism are indivisible. Um, I don't think she could have been one without the other. I mean, I did say to her, did you ever think about doing opera? Because, of course, I think she had the voice for it had she wanted to. And she said, well, I was a bit too small for opera. Well, in those days, of course, sopranos were were more voluptuous creatures. (laughs) Um, But she said, you know, I also wanted to keep my feet in the dirt. And I think what she meant was, you know, folk music was close to social activism. You know, it was kind of almost inherently left-wing. 
Um, and not that she sees herself as left wing or right wing, but, you know, the left in the 60s obviously was aligned with all the right causes, as it mostly is. Um, and, and historically with Seeger and Guthrie, of course, right back to the, you know, against the Spanish Civil War, against Hitler, and through Joe Hill and all that kind of stuff. So she was, she was you know, the, the social activism and, and the music just went hand in hand. And they continued to do so throughout all her performing career, although in the last couple of decades, um, she she was less, she spoke less politics from the stage. I mean, in the 60s and 70s, in the 70s, she spoke a lot. You know, I'm at concerts where almost 50% was talk. Um, but in the last tour, for example, you know, she'd sing Three's Deportee and preface it with a little remark about we shouldn't be building walls, we should be building bridges, and we should be clothing the naked and feeding the hungry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she sang Deportee. All she needed to say, really, and just as she also um, she she sang, the president sang Amazing Grace from the last album, and she, and she next to it she sang Birmingham Sunday, which was Richard Farina's song about the 1963 Birmingham school bombing, which showed this sort of continuity in her in her career. Um, and also sadly that not too much changed, you know, in many ways. This song is a song I wrote when I was in Italy, and it is one part of a three-part song that was written for the movie Sacco and Vanzetti. They were probably our most famous political prisoners in this country. We got the royal treatment, so to speak. (laughs) And all of the words are taken from letters from Vanzetti. I'm a prisoner, fear not to relay my crime, the crime is loving the forsaken, only silence is of strength and power against the scissor law police know how to make a man a guilty or an innocent against the scissor power of police the shameless lies that men have told will evermore be paid in gold hatred and the simple fact
me, I have my love, my innocence, the workers and the poor. Rebellion, revolution, don't need dollars, they need this instead. Imagination, suffering, light, and love, and care for every human being. You never steal, you never kill, you are a part of hope and life. sense when I look at the stars that we are children of life. Death is small. Speaking with Liz Thompson, who is more than likely the uh, most prominent expert on Joan Baez. She's interviewed her so many times. She has a brand new book out that you can uh, get now. It was just uh, published uh, this October. And and it, it kind of is also written to coincide with Joan's 80th birthday, which is going to happen in January. The name of the book is The Last Leaf. And again, Elizabeth Thompson, for, uh, for, if folks want to find your website, Liz, how would they do that? Um, well, you can find me. The book is written as Elizabeth Thompson, as are my other books. But, you know, everyone, the world of journalism and my friends know me as Liz Thompson, T-H-O-M-S-O-N-O-P. And um, my website is, um, I'm going to have to look it up, Liz Thompson, <laughs> www.lizthompson. Um, isn't that ridiculous? I have to, I have to check it. Um, yeah, www.lizthompson.co.uk. And, I, you know, I can be found doing various things. You can find me via my Amazon page, I think. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I reply to emails if anyone wants to engage. But, I, you know, I hope the book sends people back to the music uh, and also brings them to a wide, especially younger people, to a wider appreciation of her, the totality of her career, which, of course, isn't over yet. She's painting um, and singing from her kitchen, as she has been. It's, you know, she's yeah. not going to go out on tour again, and I doubt that she'll make another album. But, you know, her career is hugely important, and her music will be listened to decades hence. Yeah. And uh, her activism is part of a much wider um, field of study for people, you know, at universities who look at women's studies, peace studies, Vietnam, you know, the whole 20th century and 21st century American psychodrama, and she's a very important thread in that whole tapestry. Yeah, and many artists are doing this now, too, singing from their kitchens and what have you uh, on YouTube and Facebook and uh, in in lieu of this COVID virus and the inability to perform live, uh, it, it, it's a great actually. It's it, it's a positive side effect of the, of the virus. Now she she was never a songwriter uh, in her early years. What was the what made her start writing songs? Is there anything in particular? Because she has some great songs out there, you know, especially uh, the Diamonds and Rust and yeah, um, uh, which is an absolute classic. But I, I mean, she says someone said to her, "Why don't you write, write your own songs?" And she thought, "Well, there's an idea, you know, haven't thought of that." So from the you know from '69 and Sweets of Galahad was the first. Well, 
well no north and so on on, on Joan were the first one but the first kind of one that survived in the repertoire was Sweet to Galahad which was written for her sister's second Mimi's um, second marriage um, and then of course as you say Diamonds and Rust is the most beautiful the most well known of her song her mm-hmm. affair with Dylan told in just a few verses in that amazing bridge um, and Gulf Winds was entirely self-written, the only album that is completely um, her own songs. Um, she didn't, you know, she didn't write it much for the last twenty odd years. But there is an incredible song on, I mean, several songs, but on on in one of her eighties albums called Speaking of Dreams. The title track is a huge production ballad about another affair with a, a young French man. Um, it was conceived at the piano, and it's a beautiful, it's this kind of real lush ballad, not something you'd think of as being a typical Joan Byer song, but she, she's written some really lovely songs, and though people don't think of her as a songwriter, and Blessed Are, which was 1971, which was the first sort of current album I was given for Christmas that year, I remember when I was just really getting into it. Um, about 50% of, of that is her own stuff, which includes obviously the title track, but you know, stuff that survived in, in her repertoire until um, quite late on. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, very sort of narrative, not you know the complete opposite of Dylan. Yeah. Um, mostly very straightforward in terms of lyrics and so on, but beautifully conceived. And but you know, Diamonds and Rust is the absolute the absolute jewel. How about I do play Speaking of Dreams? And okay, that sounds this, good because people this, will be surprised by that. Yeah, this is from the Gold Castle Masters, uh, John yep. Baez with Speaking of Dreams. Listening streets of gay Paris Playing the gypsy keys After the rain And taking tea at the Ritz In boots and jeans With a teenage girl who said That it would be her grandest dream And speaking of dreams I really must say I couldn't have dreamed you are Not the way you burst into Sleeping demons are. You were not yet born when my career began in '59. We're a sign of the times. Who cares if you are a breath of spring and I? Couple on the road of Rivoli. You spent your youth in the rainforests of distant Cameroon. Your father was a navy captain. I am the queen of hearts and the daughter of the moon. Speaking of dreams, you took me to see.
And if you feel as I do We've erased the lines between reality And all our painted dreams And take me down to where the gypsies sing The songs their mothers knew Tie bright ribbons in my hair And lean on the wind and watch me while I dance for you I'm speaking with Elizabeth Thompson, the uh, biographer of Joan Baez, the, the most recent biography. Are there any other biographies, by the way, Liz? I don't think there's any. There are a couple of uh, young readers things, Hispanics of Achievement, I think, both t- that type of series. But nothing else in English. There's a, there's a very old French biography, illustrated biography from about 1980-81, and I believe there's a German one, although I've not seen it. I think that's also quite old. But I think this is maybe the first proper adult biography in English, which is very surprising. Yeah, that, that the, is uh, very surprising, uh, considering her fame and her age. One, one would think there'd be more. But, uh, well, then this is the one to get. So we, <laughs> we encourage everybody to check this out. Uh, yeah. um, and, I should uh, mention also that Arthur Levy, who did the discography for, her, for all the Baez reissues, contributed fabulous discography to this which I'm profoundly grateful. I came to know him during while I was doing my first two village trips, Greenwich Village Festivals, and he offered to do the discography, and it's huge um, benefit to the book. And, you know, I think a pretty definitive um, record for anyone who really wants to explore. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you touched on this before, but now uh, that Joan is not performing anymore, uh, she, you mentioned that she's painting. Yeah. She's had uh, one ex- exhibition of painting called Mischief Makers, which was in, uh, held at a gallery in uh, Sao Salito. Um, and I think the collection's been bought by a university in Sonoma, a part of a particular collection. She was due to have a second Mischief Makers this sort of fall, but it's gone by the wayside, as with everything else. Um, but she's, she's very prolific. I mean, she's been painting sort of Mischief Makers, as she calls them, from Martin Luther King to Harry Belafonte to Vaclav Havel, so lots of old friends there, and Dylan, of course. Um, and then she's doing, I think, icons as well, friends and icons. I think she's called them to people like Judy Collins and the Indigo Girls. Uh, but she's all portraits, so she's really busy. I mean, she's, she's, she's drawn forever and a day from childhood, and some of her albums have her artwork on the sleeve. But this is the first, in the last few years, she's been doing, working in acrylics. Hmm. And they're pretty, pretty remarkable. I was very excited and privileged to, um, to have via her gallery the offer of a self-portrait, um, which is on the back jacket of the book. So that was, that was very exciting. And are these available if people want to buy them? 
Yes, there's, if you Google Joan Baez art, um, there are limited edition prints of some of them, which are sort of reasonably affordable. And then, of course, there are the originals, which um, vary in price um, considerably, you know, from, uh, I don't want to begin at, but they think that the most pricey that I've noticed is about $30,000. But there are lots of perfectly reasonable price, limited edition prints. And in fact, she did two prints to raise money for various COVID funds, which was oh, nice. Great. I have one of the numbered uh, prints that raised money for Italy. How great is that? Have you spoken to her about this book? I mean, recently no, about, she knows the... about it. I mean, I, I, the the commission came just after I last interviewed her in Bristol in the UK, and I wrote to her to say that I'd had this and I was thrilled, um, giving her the option to say no if she really didn't want me to do it. Um, I didn't hear anything from her, which I didn't expect, but I do know it was discussed with her manager because two people told me they asked whether it was okay to talk, and and it was. So uh, that was very nice. I mean, maybe maybe I should have asked her for specific stuff, but I know she's um, I know she's updating her her own autobiography, um, and a voice to sing with was published in the late eighties. So this would bring the story up to date. So I didn't feel it was fair to encroach on that. And it's you know, it's very much. I mean, it's, I'm not delving into the uh, her personal life, which she's written about extensively. I mean, it's very much an appreciation of her as a as a creative artist and as a social political figure. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't rooting around in her private life for, for um, salacious details, you know. Well, from what I've read, I can't see how she would not be pleased with this book. Uh, it is an incredibly uh, detailed and wonderful story. And gosh, thank you for writing this, Liz. And well, thank you. I was, I mean, you know, for most of the time, it was very hard to write about it because no one was interested. And then, so when, you know, I've written articles down the years when I got this commission, I was, I was thrilled to be able to do it. So, um, and now it's out. I'm, you know, I'm really pleased. I'm pleased with how it looks, and you know, I hope it. I've had some nice reactions. So that's very encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Liz, Liz Thompson, I want to thank you so much for joining me today here on the Catskills Cafe. And thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Oh. I hope we might meet in person at some point when I can get back to the States. Thank you, Liz. Have a great afternoon. Thank you very much. And, uh, well, have a great good evening. Night. Well, well, good afternoon to all your listeners. Thank you. A friend Bye-bye. saw her Bye. drifting and caught her Unguarded fantasies flying too far Memories tumbling like sweets from a jar And take me down to the harbor now Grapes of the summer are low on the bow Ghosts of my history will follow me there And the winds of the old days will blow through my songs from the good old days set us to marching with banners ablaze but reporters there's no sense in prying our blue-eyed sun's been denying the truths that are wrapped in a mystery the 60s are over so set him free
self-righteousness will not budge Singer, Savior, 